Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and in today's excellent episode, we will be responding directly to Mohammed El Aryan after he appeared on Dmitry Kofina's podcast, which is called Hidden Forces. I have to recommend to my audience to listen to that podcast. It's fantastic, very in-depth, professionally done, wonderful. Lots of interesting guests, lots of interesting topics. And he had, let's see, it was episode 232 on Valentine's Day 2022. He released an episode with, of course, everyone knows him, Mohammed El Aryan. And I'm going to read out the transcript to Jeff and see how much Jeff agrees with Mr. El Aryan. Is it 99%, 99.5%, 99.9%? We'll find out. All right, Jeff. I'm going to jump right in. All right, two minute and 30 second mark. So, Mohammed, oh, this is Kofinas. So, Mohammed, you've been one of the more outspoken critics of the Fed in recent months. You've made the case for more hawkish forward guidance and also tighter monetary policy. Specifically, this idea of a policy mistake. What exactly do you think the Fed has gotten wrong here? And Jeff, of course, just jump right in. Don't wait for me to to look at you, just jump in at any moment. Mohammed El Arian, inflation, hawkish Fed, and he's talking about a policy mistake when I don't think he means policy mistake the same way that anybody else would use the term. Well, let's find out. Yeah, let's, I'm, yeah, let's find out. El Arian, very helpful. So three stages of this policy mistake. Stage number one goes back to 2020 when, for understandable reasons, they decided to adopt a new policy framework. The problem is that the policy framework they adopted was made for the world of yesterday, not the world of today. The world of yesterday was insufficient demand. The world of today is insufficient supply. So mistake number one is adopting a framework change at the wrong time that told the markets that they would be looking backwards, not forward, in trying to contain inflation. Jeff, I'll jump in right here, right now. I don't think we've entered, I don't think we've exited the era of insufficient demand. I am quite certain that the economy is still quite lousy and economic activity will be meek and consumption in the advanced economies is going to be modest, modest. We've had a surge recently, but I think that was primarily related to what we were experiencing in the shock after COVID and the shutdowns. And that pretty soon we will be falling back into the pattern that we saw from 2007 through 2019. Yeah, but remember, the mainstream opinion and mainstream economic opinion, which, I mean, Mohammed al is definitely a part of that cabal and that group. They think that and they really believe that the efforts in 2021 or 2020 and then into 2021 shifted the demand curve to the right, not temporarily, but permanently. They really think they fixed the whole um, demand shortfall of the previous era. So he's saying we fixed the demand problem. That's good. We've done that. But the problem was now we don't have a demand problem. So, you know, I think that's the old econometric assumption that any kind of stimulus has a greater than one multiplier. And then when you multiply that by this massive amount of fiscal and government intervention, economists really believe that no, this is a brand new era. This is not going to be the 2008 to 2019 era that's done with. So yeah, we would disagree with that. And I think markets are disagreeing with that. But that is a, I think it's an unchallenged assumption in most of the mainstream economic theory. Do you have any words regarding insufficient supply? We've been talking about inventory in the U.S. at the retail level, at the wholesale level. Do you have anything to add there? Sure. I think he's right on that assumption, too, because I don't think it was an assumption. It was a combination of two factors that led to consumer prices increasing at the rate that they did, which was the demand curve shifted to the right temporarily. But it was a significant shift to the right. At the same time, the supply curve was inelastic. Companies, producers, shippers, they could not keep up with that shift in demand. And so when your supply curve is nearly vertical, any shift in demand immediately goes right to prices, right? Because there's so much more demand for goods than the ability of producers to produce them or ship them to where they need to be. So in that respect, it was a two-step process. The demand curve shifted to the right because of artificial intervention, interventions temporarily. 
And the, the supply curve globally was inelastic because of all the restrictions from COVID, you know, labor problems, material shortages, logistical issues, all those things combined made the, the entire supply chain incredibly rigid in a way it hadn't been in maybe decades and maybe generations. So, yeah, there, it was a dual problem, a classic supply shock problem where the uh, supply curve was very inelastic and it's it's still very inelastic now. Continuing with Mr. L. Arian, stage number two, step number two, which was a much more obvious mistake. And many of us have warned against it as early as March of last year. They, the Fed, decided to characterize the higher inflation as transitory and they did <laughs> not retire that characterization until the end of November when there was ample evidence both from the companies and from the economic data, that inflation was not transitory. Well, see, that's the, th you know, he talks about companies have gotten on board the inflation uh, narrative too, and he talks about transitory. I think the Fed correctly identified that this was transitory temporary supply shock, where they've erred is in then recharacterizing it in November as, well, we had transitory supply shock consumer prices, but that's leading into other things. And we're more worried about these other things. And we've talked about those before. That's inflation expectations as well as the tight labor market. But he addresses the issue here that companies are starting to get used to inflation too, which is something we've seen numerous times over the last 15 years as well. How many times in 2008 did we hear companies say, well, yeah, it might be a great recession, but you know, prices are going through the, look at oil. It's July 20, 2008 and oil is $144 a barrel. This is inflation. How many times in 2011? We talked about this on our show, right, Emil, with what was his name? Uh, Mr. Simon from Walmart yeah. in 2011 has said he warned consumers, the, you know, the biggest retailer in the country, biggest retailer in the world, warning consumers in 2011 to get used to high levels of inflation. It's here to stay. We keep making these same errors over and over again because largely it's it's the problem is economics. Economics doesn't actually have a grip on what really goes on with inflation. And really, most economists, they don't really do much as far as understand the economy either. I keep going back to Ronald Coase's 1990 or 1991 Nobel Prize speech that he gave in Sweden when he said, you know, economics has proceeded without any real detailed knowledge of the economy. And that's really the problem here is we have all these economists running around talking about things that they continuously demonstrate so little knowledge of. Continuing on. This is mistake number three that the Fed has committed, according to Mr. L. Arian. Mistake number three is what's happening today. By not moving early enough, they're going to be forced into a very hard pivot. They will bunch three sets of contractionary measures. And the risk is that the economy could not navigate through these three contractionary measures. We talked about this a lot, and I think we're going to continue to talk about it a lot. If this is a rip-roaring, genuinely inflationary economy, then a couple rate hikes are not going to be a problem to navigate, right? How can we sit back and say, well, you know, the Fed funds rate gets up to 1%, and then that's going to trigger a nasty reaction. What? Are we really supposed to believe that a couple rate hikes are that powerful after we just went through a 15-year period, even longer, you go back to Greenspan's conundrum in 2005, where rate hikes, rate cuts, QEs, all of the things the Fed have done have been shown to have almost no impact on anything. Now we have this 1970s-style inflation danger. The Fed's going to do a couple rate hikes, and that's going to be difficult for the economy to navigate. You're contradicting yourself right from the very start. It's just, you know... Does anybody stop and think about these things or just I think what happens is, you know, these myths and legends about the Fed become so deeply ingrained, not just in economics, you know, capitally economics, but also in the mainstream, because that message is reinforced over and over. We attribute everything to the Fed without thinking about what it is the Fed does or any kind of uh, any kind of serious consideration about whether or not the legends and myths meet the results. Skipping ahead. Six minute mark. Now we're going to be talking about globalization a bit. Again, Mohammed El Arian, we've entered in a world not just of insufficient supply, and that relates not just to the supply of goods and services, but also to the supply of labor, but also in a world in which we have either pressed pause or reversed on globalization. That in itself has an additional set of consequences for the global economy. I think the first element is insufficient supply. We live it every day. It's harder to get things. It takes longer to ship things around the world. 
it's become much more expensive. Oil has become much more expensive. Energy is much more expensive. Gas is more expensive. Because as we all know, oil prices go up and they never come down, right? <laughs> Once oil prices go up, they stay high forever. History has shown that that's the case, right? I mean, and then, you know, the labor. We were short of labor. That's how he ends yeah. this paragraph. And then there are labor shortages. I think right. all of us are exposed to these labor shortages. Jeff Snyder. Yeah, and that's that's a theme that we come back to time and time and time again. And it's not just about 2020 and the post-2020 recovery or rebound. The participation problem has been an issue ever since, oh, October 2008 for a reason. And here he is echoing, you can hear it in what he's saying, echoing the mainstream economic theory, which was, oh, the Fed didn't, you know, the Fed was successful. It's your fault, American worker that the recovery didn't show up because you're too lazy to go back to school or you're too drug addicted on opioids that you can't work anymore. So this conjuring up of a labor shortage to try to explain the short, shortfall in economic activity is nothing more than avoiding the truth, the consequences that are baked into all these market prices, which Mohammed El Arian, as the head of PIMCO, should really know something about. It's amazing how we have all these bond market kings and gurus and experts who always seem to demonstrate so little lack of appreciation and knowledge for the markets in which we're giving them guru status for. So how do we explain the economy that has, you know, pre before 2020, never lived up to its expectations? And the economists have said, well, it's, it's the American workers' fault. It can't be our fault. We know what we're doing, even though it's pretty clear they don't. And now we have the 2020 or the post-2020 participation problem, which is piled onto the pre-existing one, and now we have even fewer workers working, which somehow that adds up to an even worse labor shortage when that's there is no such thing as a labor shortage. There isn't. Uh, in small e economic terms, if companies pay the wages that workers demand, they will have workers. It's really that simple. And the issue is they don't pay the rates that workers are demanding. So the workers have left have exited the labor force, not because they're drug addicted or they don't go back to school, because they realize there's no good paying jobs that make it worthwhile to do those kinds of things. And so what we're left with is a mismatch, wondering why, why aren't companies paying the market clearing wage for workers that would, that would clear up the labor shortage? That's really the issue. And it gets back to the economic situation, which is they can't pay the market clearing wage because the economy is not inflationary, it's not robust, and it is not recovering. For over a decade. That's the key. Yes. Just for a new audience. It's not because of the COVID restrictions. This is way before COVID. Like you said, the, the labor force for the first time in post-war history, the actual labor force, the official count of the labor force, declined. That never happened before in a recession, because why would it? Just because you're unemployed, you're, you're, you're thrown out of work, you're laid off in a recession, doesn't mean you exit the labor force. You're still going to look for another job. You, might, you may have been laid off now, but you're, gonna, you're not going to leave the labor force permanently because you got fired. You still need to work. You're still looking to work. You're still seeking to, to continue your career. But October 2008, for the first time in post-war history, the U.S. labor force began to decline in absolute terms, not just in percentage terms or not just as a proportion of some other population. In absolute numbers, the labor force shrunk starting in October 2008. That seems to ring a bell for some reason. So for the first time, something bad happened in the labor force, and it has never been fixed since October 2008. The labor force participation has been an enormous problem. You can't reconcile that with this labor shortage, the economy's doing awesome, inflationary pressures for the foreseeable future. They tried quantitative easing shortly after October 2008. It has not fixed the labor problem or the economy, but Jeff Snyder, head of global research of Alhambra Partners, it may have fixed something else. We turn again to Mohammed El Arian, and now we'll be discussing QE. Here's Mr. El Arian. You present a case for buying a certain bond, stock, whatever, and we go through all the fundamentals. Then you'll be asked a very important question, quote, who is going to buy after us? So. The subsequent buyer validates you on purchase, but the subsequent buyer does something else as well. They provide you liquidity if you have to change your mind. Now, I came along and I tell you, your quote, your subsequent buyer is a central bank. It is the Federal Reserve. It has a massive balance sheet. It has seemingly an infinite willingness to use it 
And one more thing, it is price insensitive. It is not a commercial participant. It will buy regardless, and it will turn up every single month with massive purchases. If I tell you that, and you believe it because you've seen it now month after month, you will buy ahead of this. Whenever you will see a geopolitical shock causing some pullback in asset prices, you will know there's a big buyer out there. And it doesn't matter that they're buying just government bonds and mortgages because this ripples through the whole system. In psychological terms, that's what he's talking. He's not talking about bank reserves. He's not talking about monetizing stocks. What he's saying is that if you believe the fairy tale, if you believe the myth, if you believe the legend that the Fed is printing money, then you'll be comforted. You'll say, oh, I feel good because there's money flowing everywhere. I can't find it. I can't look on a balance sheet and, and other than the feds and pin down where that money is. But I don't need to think about it too hard. I just come to the conclusion the Fed has printed money. It's flowing through everywhere. It's flowing through every economic and financial orifice. Therefore, I feel comforted. I feel good. I feel ripe for taking risks in the stock market or maybe cryptocurrency or some other form of financial asset. And what he's really saying is what the Fed actually does. It's not about printing money. It's not about bank reserves. It's about coaxing risk-taking behavior out of reluctant and maybe risk-averse financial participants more than anything. Obviously, it doesn't work in the real economy at all. In terms of the financial economy and financial marketplaces, it sounds like a plausible theory. And in the stock market in particular, the theory works out pretty well because stock prices do correlate to confidence in monetary policies, even though there might not be any money in it. And even though nobody can figure out how the Fed's bank reserves get to anywhere in those markets, because they don't. As long as you believe in the myth, you feel good about it, you act on that behavior, which is the entire point. These are not central banks. They may be buyers in these markets. And as Mohammed El Arian correctly points out, they're non-economic buyers in these markets, but they're really depending upon the psychological effect above everything else. Now, I believe you're right. I believe he is not saying that this liquidity that the central bank is creating is flowing through the stock market, bond market, the economy, but he's a little bit loose with his language a little bit later yes. on here. And he does emphasize the behavioral aspect of it a couple of times, but then he also is a little bit loose. So I'm not quite sure if we should extend him that assumption that he's not here. Yeah. Let, let me read it on to you and okay. you tell me if we were being a little bit too generous with his interpretation of QE and money in the economy. Here, here we go. So continue. So the second reason why markets have been immune from geopolitical risk, in fact, for almost any shock, is that there is confidence that the Federal Reserve was our best friend forever. Okay. Don't underestimate how powerful that phenomenon was. That's why you hear constantly, by the dip, there is no alternative and FOMO, fear of missing out. Now, Dimitri Kofinas jumps in yeah, and says, well, that's, you know, that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And it only works as long as it works. And that's not really a real, it's not really a fundamentally sound basis for <laughs> any marketplace. Kofinas jumps in, quote, by the dip, investors for years have become conditioned, not only because of just the Federal Reserve, but because of the historical empirical data that has shown convincingly that investors are better off being in the market and not selling just using opportunities to buy. How do you think about that going forward? Now, here's the part where I wanted you to chime in, Jeff. Now we go back to El Arian, quote, we're coming from a period in which investors have been deeply conditioned to buy the dip, and they've had consistent confirmation that that is the right thing to do. There is a reason why that is happening. It's very visible. It's called the Federal Reserve injecting as much as 120 billion of liquidity each month into the marketplace. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think what he's doing here, it's basically, he just, everybody just flips back into their training and their training is the, you know, we talked about it with the first QE 20 some years ago, all the media reports immediately say, quantitative easing is a central bank pouring trillions of dollars or trillions of yen into the real economy. It's our shorthand for how we describe this process because we don't want to go through the whole thing where it's actually an asset swap and banks are exchanging bank reserves for uh, learning assets. It's easier for us to just say the central bank is pouring all these dollars into the real economy or pouring all these dollars or whatever currency denomination into whatever financial market. I don't necessarily think he means it literally, 
I think he's just falling back into that same shorthand that we've all been conditioned to believe in without question. And it's really that psychological impact that they're talking about here. If you really believe that this is the case and you just, you know, whenever you hear the term quantitative easing and the first thing that pops in your mind is that phrase, pouring trillions of dollars into the markets, that's what the Fed wants, even though it's not true. None of that statement is true. There's no money. It doesn't go into the economy. It's nothing more than an inert asset swap, where, as we just talked about with an actual banker from Italy, Alfonso Pecatalo, just a couple of days ago, bankers are actually a, a pretty much a problem. They're a hindrance. They're a burden. They're not actual useful money. They're inert at best. So, again, this is all psychology. It's all about manipulating people's behavior so they do something that the Federal Reserve and economists have all decided is an optimal form of outcome, right? They want you to buy stocks because they believe high stock prices then signal to consumers and businesses to spend money freely, to invest money freely, because the stock market is the representation of how the economy is doing. And if stock prices are high, the real economy must be really good. And so that's really the psychological game here. And it all goes back to what does QE actually do? QE is supposed to get people happy, make them confident, to, to buy financial assets so their prices then are manipulated in a way that uh, central bankers think is helpful to the real economy. It's not pouring money in the real economy. It's about as convoluted and circuitous of a route to get to real economic behavior as you could possibly imagine. So of course, it's obviously fraught with dangers and uncertainties. Excellent, Jeff. We're halfway through this transcript. Moving forward to the 18-minute mark, we're going to Kofinas now. Quote, why do you think the Fed and other central banks didn't accurately factor into their tightening cycle the risks to financial instability? That they were focused very much on employment and on inflation, but they were maybe not taking enough account of the more difficult things to measure like capital misallocation or unsustainable business practices. Mr. <laughs> that would require some degree of economic competence, small economic competence, which nobody at the Fed has demonstrated in generations. In fact, maybe even its entire history. When you go back to, I mean, the reason the Federal Reserve was implemented in the first place was that so we never have a bank panic to begin with. You know, the 1907 panic was supposed to be the last one. We get this new brand new Federal Reserve and a little bit over a decade later, bam, Great Depression. And then Great Depression, oh, we're going to reform the Fed. We're going to make sure it doesn't perform as badly as it did in the 30s. What happens? Bam, great inflation. It goes in the opposite direction. The Fed's entire history has been just this laughable. They have very little, they've demonstrated historically, very little expertise in the area of economics. They really should be sticking to money and just making sure there's enough money in the system and not worrying about the economic consequence because they can't. But they can't even do money. Starting in the 50s and 60s, they lost control of the ability to do that. This is why they're left with this ridiculous theories and practices centered on psychology, because they don't know what's going on in the economy. They don't know what's going on in the monetary system. They're just trying to peg variables as if they're uh, you know, a spreadsheet and plugging in numbers on a, on a formula. Well, if we do this and then th this happens down the road, even though we have no idea how it happens. So the idea that the Federal Reserve was going to operate with any kind of any minimum level of expertise over economic affairs is just I know that's contrary to the, the idea that they're all powerful and omniscient. But again, that's part and parcel of the psychology. It doesn't work if you don't believe these guys are the best and the brightest and the most the highest level of ex demonstrate the highest level of expertise. Mr. L. Arian, it is because the Federal Reserve was so worried about financial instability that it ended up with a pedal to the metal approach when the economy would have called for something else. Let's take the fourth quarter of 2018. A relatively new Federal Reserve chair comes in, recognizes that the Fed had been co-opted by markets, recognizes there's a ton of moral hazard that has been built in, recognizes that there was an unhealthy codependency between the Fed and the markets, and in the fourth quarter starts signaling that the Fed was going to tighten policies consistent with economic developments. And this is just ridiculous. This is just absolutely ridiculous. So what he's saying here, what he's yes. alleging is that the Fed stopped hiking rates because the stock market had a stumble in the fourth quarter of 2018, which around here in Eurodollar University 
We have a name for what happened in the fourth quarter of 2018. It's called the landmine. And it wasn't the stock market. It was everything else, including the real economy. So the idea that Jay Powell stopped hiking rates and the last rate hike was in December of 2018. And then a couple weeks later, January 2019, the Fed's out there saying, well, maybe we're going to pause our rate hike regime. That wasn't the stock market. That was the actual economy. In fact, looking at the stock market, the stock market was a lagging indicator. As we've said so many times over the years, especially since we're comparing now to 2018, there were any number of very useful, accurate, historically validated warning signs long before the fourth quarter of 2018 that told you rate hikes were inappropriate. The economy was in trouble, not just in the U.S., but globally. We're seeing everything slow down to the point where there was a danger of recession. So when Jay Powell stopped hiking rates, it had nothing to do with the stock market. It was finally because the the problems that these other markets like Eurodollar futures, swap spreads, the flattening yield curve, the rising U.S. dollars exchange value, all of these things that happened throughout 2018, long before Jay Powell and the stock market, they had warned everybody that the economic case, the financial case, wasn't about stock prices staying high. It was about the system actually pricing errors in money, finance, and economy. Things were going wrong long before that. And it became so obvious by the fourth quarter of 2018, even the stock market started to sell off. Even the people like Jay Powell and FOMC could no longer ignore what was really happening. That's really the point here. It wasn't the stock market was falling and that Jay Powell wanted to rescue it. It was that all these bad things the market had predicted, the real market, the bond market had predicted previously, had come true and had come true to, to such an extent even Jay Powell couldn't ignore it anymore. So linking that to the stock market is either highly ignorant or it's disingenuous here. I think it's probably the latter. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to read three sentences that are going to floor you. It's going to be a jab. <laughs> it's going to be a roundhouse to the kidney and then one right to the kneecap. But ladies and gentlemen, as you're laying there on the floor, holding on to consciousness, <laughs> Jeff, your heart rate is going to get 160 beats per minute, but I need you to hold on. I'm going to read three more sentences after that that'll just complete the picture. Ladies and gentlemen, just, just try to hold on. Here we go. El Arian, quote, if you remember at the time, the economy, fourth quarter of 2018, ladies and gentlemen, if you remember at the time, the economy was doing extremely well. Markets yeah. were just fine. Liquidity was <laughs> abundant. Markets had their second conundrum. The first one was in 2013, mid-June. They had their second one. This one plays out in the equity market in a big way. And come the beginning of January 2019, Chair Powell undertakes a massive U-turn that is not warranted by economic developments. Oh, my this God. See what I mean? This guy is supposed to be a bond guru or something, right? And the entire bond market was saying, no. Again, Eurodollar futures specifically tied to three months LIBOR, therefore a sort of framed reference on what the Federal Reserve is going to do. June of 2018, Eurodollar futures invert for the first time. Was that a conundrum? Well, yeah, to Mohammed el it was, but to the market it wasn't because the economy was not fine. Liquidity was not fine. Remember, the Reserve Bank of India's governor, Urjit Patel, June of 2018, the same month that the Eurodollar futures curve inverted. What did he say in the Financial Times of London? Dollar funding has evaporated. These things all link together. How does Mohammed El Arya not know this? That's, you know, that's where we're really going. Either he doesn't know this or he's being disingenuous. Neither of those choices are very good and reflect very well upon this guy. And really... <laughs> my, my blood pressure is skyrocketing a bit here because it's it's guys like him that keep the public in the dark because he gets all this attention. Nobody learns from these repeated mistakes. We keep repeating these cycles over and over again because here's a guy who comes along and says, the Fed's very powerful. The economy's doing well, really well. And then the stock market tanks and he changes his mind. That's not what happened at all. It wasn't even close to what happened. Again, Eurodollar Futures, June of 2018, said the risks are rising, that Jay Powell's going to have to stop hiking rates and maybe even have to turn around and start cutting them. 
Guess what happened? Exactly that. June of 2018, the market had pegged it. So don't say that the market was, you know, it's being manipulated or it's wrong or it's whatever. It was just fine. Yeah, everything's just fine except for, no, there was, and even before that, we talked, you know, the flat yield curve, the treasury curve, which is the simplest indication that you can look at and analyze. The fact that the treasury curve, the yield curve was flattening as much as it had all throughout 2018, right from the very start of that year, was a warning that no, not everything is fine, that the economy was more likely to sour rather than soar. So the idea that the stock market sell off in fourth quarter of 2018 was some kind of unpredictable shock is just ridiculous. And for somebody who's in position or at least in you know public reputation of being some kind of bond market specialist or guru, for him to make these claims, it's just it's something bad. It's awful. I don't really want to say much more than that. But again, this is the reason why the public has been left in the dark, confused, because he gets all the attention. And when reality, which is really not that hard to figure out and understand once you know how to look at these things, it was there in real time all along. Nobody should have been shocked by what happened in 20, late 2018 and 2019 because it was accurately priced and predicted long before then. Which brings us to 2022, I imagine, because we're seeing all of these things repeat again. In fact, they're actually repeating in even more emphatic fashion in 2022 than they had in 2018. A few things here. We didn't even mention May 29th, Jeff. Was that a, oh, an example yeah, I know. of ample liquidity in the market when you had a... Of course not. And that's, you know, we haven't even touched on, I mean, we're basically focusing on just the public facing indications that don't require a whole lot of interpretive power. We can go much deeper than that. Like you're saying, you know, May 29th, 2018, to us who understand collateral and what, what happens is, and, you know, the importance of collateral for liquidity, May 29th was a wake up call. It was like, okay. We had collateral scarcity issues before then, but May 20, that was a serious break in the collateral sufficiency chain so that maybe it was collateral scarcity before then, but it became a collateral shortage thereafter. And that played a central role in what all these other markets were or projecting into the public. You know, Euro dollar futures inversion, two weeks after May 29th, not likely a coincidence. Urgent Patel, again, dollar funding has evaporated outside the United States. Not coincidence that all these things happens together. It's just that because of Mohammed Al Arian, who tells everybody, oh, just the Fed, ample liquidity, bank reserves are everywhere. Nobody thinks and looks too hard on these other factors, which are far more relevant to what's going on in the real world in the markets than anything he has to say about them. And don't forget the U.S. dollar, Jeff. For six yeah. to eight months before the fourth quarter of 2018, it had stopped falling and had begun rising. So that was yet another simple. There were ample ample indications. Again, simple things that you could just look at. Even if you don't know why they're doing what they're doing, you look at the euro dollar futures curve, it's inverted. It should not be inverted. That's a big warning sign. You look at the yield curve, just a simple yield curve. It should not be flattening if growth and inflation are about to accelerate. It should be steepening. We should be seeing a curve that looks more like it's going back toward normal rather than flattening out around 3%. That was a huge warning sign that something was wrong. Yeah, this, that was an astounding series of statements there. Okay, moving on to the next section. Dimitri Kofinas, quote, How would you say that investors are set up going into this top, wherever that might be, and maybe you think we've already hit it? Now, Mr. Mr. L. Arian, quote, the other thing people have discovered is that we lack inherent liquidity. If I had said to you a few years ago that a widely owned name that is deemed to be highly liquid in the marketplace could be down 25% in a few hours, you could wipe $250 billion off of market valuation, you would have said, quote, that's really unlikely unless this company is defaulting. Well, that's what happened to Meta, to Facebook. Jeff, let me jump in here. Yeah. The context here is that all of a sudden there's not enough liquidity. Like just right now we're experiencing this moment if there's not enough liquidity, wow. that if you went back a couple of years ago to an investor and said this, they would be shocked. Baloney, baloney, because we've yeah. been living through this for over a decade. Here are just a few of the liquidity shocks we have experienced in the last decade. The flash crash, 2010, right? The gold slams over and over. The early morning U.S. Treasury slams, Jeff. I remember in October 2016, the pound exchange rate with the U.S. dollar just whew, 
went down. It was a flash crash there too. Yeah, flash crash there. So we've had these over and over and over. Liquidity is not ample. It hasn't been for a very long time. It's not just a recent post-COVID phenomenon. Yeah, but then how does he square this idea that liquidity is bad today with inflation? He's so concerned about inflation when we're talking about financial markets don't have liquidity. I mean, again, it's a contradictory stance. In addition to that, he's, again, placing the stock market in, 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 on the pedestal as if the stock market and stock market liquidity is the definitive measure of both the economy as well as monetary sufficiency. When it's not, I mean, markets are inherently unstable at any point, regardless of whether or not there's bank reserves or not. So, again, the central myths that we're supposed to believe here. The Fed is God and the stock market is the immediate next step in projecting God's power on earth, right? It's it's those two things above everything else when, as we keep saying, that's entirely backwards. The Fed is a janitor. It comes in after the market, the real markets, the real money has erupted in some form of crisis and the Fed tries to come in and clean up after it's over. That was what happened in 2008, 2009. It's certainly what happened in March and April of 2020. So the Fed isn't even the centerpiece of the monetary system, or let alone financial system and economy. And the stock market is just, it is easily manipulated by this behavior. So it doesn't discount actual economic and financial factors. It is simply what everyone believes. John Maynard Keynes had it exactly right. The stock market is a beauty contest where even the ugliest person, the ugliest participant in that beauty contest can be declared the winner so long as everybody declares them the winner. It has no fundamental grounding. And so we look at the stock market, we look at the Fed, and we're supposed to ignore all this other stuff over here that keeps telling us repeatedly, and not after the fact, not with the, not with the benefit of hindsight, but ahead of time, making predictions, being validated by subsequent outcomes, real scientific process here. We're supposed to ignore all that stuff because the guy who we put on TV who's supposed to be the bond market expert, he ignores all that stuff and continues on with the myths and legend about the Fed and the stock market. I mean, it's just so frustrating how everything, everything top to bottom is upside down. It's understandable why that's the case, because to maintain this expectation psychology requires everything to be upside down. Because as soon as you realize the Fed is a powerless institution staffed with mathematicians, not economists, it all just falls apart. Then you think, oh my God, what am I doing here? I'm buying stocks because based on these people? Uh, I better maybe, maybe start reconsidering my investment thesis here. So it all falls apart as soon as you see the man behind the curtain. Continuing on, a couple more points and that's it. Mr. Kofinas, what guarantees do we have that the Fed would even be able to do anything about inflation since many of the sources of inflation this time around are supply driven and in some ways out of their control? Mr. El Arian responds, remember what an inflation dynamic looks like. An inflation dynamic starts with a major disruption somewhere. In the 70s, it was the oil price increase. Today. (laughs) Come on. This is a, it started in 1965, long before oil. I mean, come on. This is, this is just ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, this is the definition of gaslighting. It really is. And you know, that, that term is used way, way, way too much, obviously. But I mean, this is the textbook definition of propaganda and, and gaslight. The great inflation did not start with OPEC in 1973. It was already eight years old by then or seven and a half years old by then. It had been through an entire recession. You know, it just, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at a loss of words here because this is just, this is just ridiculous. A guy who is accomplished and as, you know, as intelligent as Muhammad Al-Aryan actually is, should know this. Especially for somebody who's in, I'm leading a bond market of mutual fund company. I should know something about the great inflation. And for somebody to make the statement that it began with oil prices, oh, this is, that's just bad. That's just unbelievably bad. He's incredibly intelligent for the paradigm he inhabits, right? Then a paradigm he inhabits is one where the earth is at the center. Yeah, but of the you know, Emil, I'm going to disagree with you on that. I okay. don't know what you're saying because you know, economists that they're you know, we talk about Aristotle and you know how Aristotle mm. is wasn't actually an idiot. He just couldn't understand the world around him because they didn't develop enough knowledge to understand the world around him. 
But this is beyond that, right? To say that great inflation began because of oil prices, that's not a, oh, where I'm just an anachronistic paradigm where I don't understand the world. That's just basic facts. That's getting a part of history that's been studied and poured over. We just look at when the CPI began to rise. It wasn't 1973. You know, President Nixon didn't institute ridiculous wage and price controls in August of 1971 because he knew OPEC was going to conduct an oil embargo a couple of years into the future. It had already become that big of a problem by 1971 that we had this, this ridiculous response from the Nixon administration. So I, you know, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you, you know, because I don't think this part is, you know, he's part of that, you know, Ben Bernanke previous, you know, outdated paradigm. I think there's really something of an agenda here where he's being actually disingenuous. I wanted to be invited to Mr. L. Arian's cocktail parties, but now obviously that <laughs> there goes that chance. I wanted to defend him a little bit. Did I? I'm sorry I ruined that for you, but you know what? I think I'm doing you a favor. Yeah, you're probably right. Big deal. More canops with tartar. Give me a break. I've had enough of those finger foods. All right, here we go. Here we go. Uh, it was the oil price increase today. Yeah, no. <laughs> it was supply disruptions, labor shortage. It's very localized. It's lumber prices you will hear. And then next thing you know, it starts to be very broadly driven. It starts to be more persistent. And the reason why is if you're not careful, what is a reversible and temporary shock changes behavior. What we've seen happen is that the shock may well have started in a certain place, lumber, chips. Next thing you know, it starts disrupting supply chains. It spreads. That's phase one of an inflation process. No, absolutely not. You know, this is, you know, historically... It's of a consumer price increase. You know, I wrote about 1947, 1948 recently, which was a supply shock. It's a supply shock that everybody agrees was a supply shock. And inflation, not inflation, but consumer prices got up. The CPI rose at a 20% annual rate in 47. Okay. Far above what we see today. I mean, what we see today looks like nothing compared to 1947 and 48. And guess what? Everybody was expecting consumer prices to continue to rise. It was started in one thing and spread to another thing and another thing. You know why it didn't last? Because it wasn't inflation. Supply shocks are not inflation. And that's not how inflation works. Again, Milton Friedman. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That doesn't mean consumer prices can't be moved around by some other factors, but if they are, it will never be the same as inflation. It won't be this, it will be transitory because by definition, without the money, it isn't actually sustained inflation. So trying to Rube Goldberg some process where a small thing becomes inflation without the money, again, there's an agenda here. That's not how it works. That's phase one of an inflation process, says Mohammed El Aryan to Jeff Snyder. <laughs> Jeff Snyder says, well, what's phase two? I'm glad you asked, says Jeff, Mr. El Aryan. Phase two is what's called adaptive expectations. Yep. And Robert Lucas. And it's econometrics. It's not real science. It's not real. It's not real economy study. It's adaptive versus um, rational expectations. It's just, it's one of the fundamental prospects that allow DSGE models to be workable, not riddled with singularities in the mathematics. So, but that doesn't make it a real world phenomenon. And adaptive expectations, I mean, we could talk about adaptive expectations for hours here because it's a, it's a genuinely interesting topic of how we went from adaptive expectations to rational expectations. But either way, all they're doing is assuming that expectations play a central role because it's the only way to plug this into an econometric model and make the model work. Whether or not it's an actual real world phenomenon really shouldn't be up for debate because it's not. As we said before, there's really no evidence in anywhere that expecta inflation expectations play a role in actual inflation. Because how the hell would it? If there isn't the money for inflation, done. End of story. That's it. So trying to come up with another way to get inflation so that we can plug it into a model doesn't make it a real thing. Phase three, maybe that one will satisfy you, Jeff. Phase three is the most dangerous one. It is when expectations formation is not just adaptive. You're not just trying to compensate for past inflation, but it becomes anticipatory. You start wanting to compensate for future inflation at its extreme. And I'm not saying we're going anywhere near that. We're not. We're not going back to the levels of the 70s, even though we are following the dynamics of the 1970s.
Yeah, no, absolutely not. That's just completely, utterly nonsense right, right there. It, it's, it's, again, you can tell Muhammad El Arian is not a banker. He's not a monetary specialist. He's not even a bond market trader. He's an economist. He is speaking like a formally trained economist because that's what he is. And so he's basically telling you verbatim what economic theory is, which, as we know in practice, doesn't ever seem to work out all that well, including just a couple years ago, back in 2018 and 2019, when we heard all these same arguments, almost verbatim, almost exactly carbon copies. This what he what you just said about the three stages of inflation. They were talking about those things in private discussions and some public discussions. And by that, I mean economists and central bankers all throughout 2018. Oh, the inflation expectations are being are in danger of being unanchored. That's why the Fed thought it had to be more aggressive to do the things that it's doing now, because they believe oil prices, once they start going up, they're going to continue to go up and that's going to feed into expectations. And that's once it gets into expectations. People begin to act and change the way they behave. And it never happened. Why did it never happen? Because it wasn't inflation. There, was, there weren't inflationary pressures. And these people should know that, but they don't pay attention to the actual markets that we're supposed to believe they're the, the primary experts of. So again, everything is upside down here. Last comment from Mr. L. Aaron. Quote, the Fed is going to be forced into bunching three contractionary measures and that threatens the economy in a way that was avoidable. It will end its asset acquisitions. They should have already done that a while ago. It will start raising interest rates, and it will look to reduce its $9 trillion bloated balance sheet. That is why we are now in the world of the third or fourth best. The first best approach was to start early, glow slowly, and make sure that the economy can accommodate. Now the Fed is going to be forced into a major pivot and we don't know what the consequences of that pivot is going to be. The marketplace is yeah, pushing. I, we oh. do know. <laughs> we have, the markets are telling us right now, over the last couple of weeks, the Eurodollar futures curve inversion has gone ballistic. It was just a little bit, as we talked about, we did an episode on that, you know, back in December 1st. And we said, you know, it's inverted. Don't, don't worry much about it. It's going to stay like a little bit inverted for a while. Come back to it when it changes. Well, that's exactly what happened. It was a tiny little bit inverted, and that was a big enough warning sign, and then basically nothing happened. And over the last couple of weeks, the inversion exploded, both in terms of depth as well as breadth. And then this week, that inversion has now moved up into the reds, which, as we say, chromodynamics here, Eurodollar futures, reds are supposed to be fed. So the market here, which was absolutely correct in predicting what happened in 2018 and 2019, is saying today that the chances of the Fed bunching rate hikes together is getting down towards slim and none. And that there's a rising risk that the Fed does a couple rate hikes, has to stop, and then maybe turn around. That might be a shock to somebody like Mohamed Al-Aryan, but what does the economy look like in the situation where the Fed suddenly stops its rate hikes and then starts to talk about, starts to make the same kind of noises and speeches that the Jay Powell and FOMC gave in early 2019? What if that happens? And it happens maybe sooner than people are anticipating, especially if they're listening to Muhammad El-Aryan. Here's the very last couple of sentences of this show. And I, I found it strange and backwards. And you tell me what you think of it, Jeff. Quote, the marketplace is pushing the Fed to increase interest rates at least five times in 2022. I would have never called for five interest rate hikes. I don't know whether our highly levered economy can absorb five rate hikes so quickly. Wait a minute. Isn't he saying the Fed should, I mean, he's saying the Fed needs to get in, in front of the curve, but now he's saying he wouldn't call for five rate hikes? I mean, again, this, it's kind of a contradictory message. My question is, the marketplace is pushing the Fed for five interest rate hikes? I thought the Fed was central. And I think the marketplace yeah. is saying, we think these guys are going to do five interest rate hikes. And that's what we're pricing in. We're not pushing for it. Look at the long end of the curve. We're not pushing for that. It's just what they're going to do. It's not up to us. That's yeah, no, how I, think, I see it. That's the it, short but... end of the curve, including Eurodollar futures too. They're, they're pricing in that the Fed's going to start doing rate hikes and the probabilities are they're going to do several. I don't think you can put a number on it. I don't think you should put a number on it. Mm -hmm. You don't take little Eurodollar futures or any of these contracts literally. It doesn't say they're going to do this number of rate hikes at this, this amount of time. 
probability distributions are the market is saying, we're taking these guys at their word. The FOMC says they're, they're going to hike rates. So the whites and the reds of euro dollar futures are saying they're going to hike rates. And now the reds are starting to doubt that and say, maybe they're, they're going to hike, they're going to start hiking rates, but we don't know how far they're actually going to get, which is the same process we went through just a couple of years ago. So it's not the market drawing the Fed upward. It's the market pricing what the Fed has said it's going to do, taking them at their word, because why wouldn't they? That's really kind of how these markets work at the short end. They're trying to price the reality of what the Fed will do in the short run. And in the short run, the Fed can ignore a lot of contrary signals, a lot of contrary data, a lot of contrary indications and, and conditions, and continue to hike rates, even though it would be inappropriate for them to do so. And that's really why the market, these curves are steep up front, and also why they're flat in the back, because the market does not agree with the reasons why the Fed is going to hike to begin with which because the market doesn't agree with Mohammed al Arian's assertion that we're in some kind of fiery inflationary inferno that's only going to get worse. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to follow this fantastic show like I do, I'm a subscriber and I have been for a long time, then just search your podcast player for Hidden Forces with Dimitri Kofinas. Lots of fantastic episodes. And Jeff, thank you very much for uh, going through the transcript with me. As always. As always.